0: Come this evening to Philippians chapter 4, and we're studying verses 1 to 7, so it'll be helpful for you to have that passage open, Philippians 4, verses 1 to 7. Simple title for our studies this evening, Joy in the Lord, Joy in the Lord, and we'll see the importance of each of those four simple words, I trust, as we make our way through this passage when we're about to say goodbye to our loved ones, even if it's just for a short time, uh, last minute reminders often come to mind. Uh, maybe a husband or wife is about to head out to work or maybe to head off to a conference for a few days and suddenly they think of things that they need to tell their spouse while they're away. Uh, put the oven on at five o'clock. Remember to pick the kids up from the neighbours. Buy some bread and milk on your way home. Whatever it may be, uh, big tasks or small, suddenly Various things come to our minds, perhaps when there's about to be uh, a goodbye, a change of routine for a short or long period of time. Well, Paul is about to say goodbye to the Philippians in this letter. He's preparing to sign off, but first he gives them some important reminders, things that he has said to them before. He's even said some of these things already in in this letter, uh, but they bear repeating one more time. One commentator calls these rapid fire challenges from Paul. This section that we're looking at this evening. Rapid fire challenges. Uh, In some ways, at at first glance, you might think some of these things don't really uh, have much to do with one another. They're just various um, reminders and commands that Paul is giving. But on closer inspection, there is one key phrase that Paul repeats over and over again in this section of the letter that does bind these different things together that he's talking about. And that phrase is found in chapter 4 verse 1 and several more times in the following verses. If you look at chapter 4 verse 1, it's that little phrase, In the Lord. In the Lord. This is one of Paul's favourite ways of describing the Christian life in all his letters. He uses it dozens and dozens of times, this phrase In the Lord. And that phrase explains to us how it is that we are to do the things that Paul challenges us to do here. Paul is saying that we can be joyful, we can be fruitful, we can have peace, we can be witnesses if we are in the Lord, walking with the Lord, united to the Lord, thinking about the Lord. And so it's those three words. In the Lord, uh, that really unite together these various rapid fire challenges that Paul gives us this evening. There are four uh, challenges that I want to highlight to you from Paul's words here in Philippians 4, verses 1 to 7. The first is that we are to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1 is connected both to what Paul has already covered in chapter 3. It's also a bridging verse. Into uh, the, what, what comes next in chapter 4. It's one of those verses for preachers, it's a bit awkward to know. Do you put it in with chapter 3 or do you preach it with chapter 4? I've gone for chapter 4, obviously, this evening. But notice the, the really affectionate language that Paul uses in chapter 4, verse 1. And again, this shows just how much he loves the Philippians. First, he, he calls them in chapter 4, verse 1, my brothers, my brothers. And again, this is a common description of Christians in the New Testament. White or brown, Jew or Gentile, they were brothers or brothers and sisters in Christ. It's one of the things I really love. Uh, I told you last week about the banner conference that I attended. And of course, you know, we're, we're brothers and sisters here this evening. We're, we're, whenever we are with Christians, we're with brothers and sisters. But at the banner conference, you're with brothers and sisters from all around the world. Uh, different skin colours, different cultures, but brothers in Christ. And that's the affectionate language that Paul uses here for the Philippians. They're his brothers. He he loves them. He longs for them. Uh, he also says that the Philippians in verse 1 are his joy and crown. And we've seen images all weekend of crowns. Uh, in, Paul's, in Paul's time, a crown, it was more like a, he's probably thinking here of a, a wreath, the wreath that was put on the head of victorious athletes in the ancient Greek games. And that was the equivalent of a gold medal today for for Olympic athletes. And so if you got a crown, it was because you were victorious uh, in your your, uh, athletic endeavors. And Paul uses that picture here. He says that the Philippians are his crown, their salvation, their progress in the faith that That's what he he wants to see. That's what he's aiming for. That's the prize as far as he's concerned. To see them with him in heaven someday. So very affectionate language that Paul uses here uh, at this juncture. But why is he again at this point emphasizing his love for the Philippians? Well in part it's to prepare the Philippians for a series of direct commands. He says in verse 1, he goes on to say, Stand firm thus in the Lord. Paul is going to give them some very direct, bold commands here. Things that perhaps some of them will be hard to hear. They'll be challenging for them to hear. And so in giving them these challenges, friends, Paul wants to make sure that they know how much he loves them. That it's coming from a place of pastoral concern for them. He doesn't just throw out these commands Cold, so to speak. He gives them these commands coming from a place of warmth and love. And the first one is that they are to stand firm in the Lord. Something he said already in his letter back in chapter 1 verse 27 uh, and it's military language and we've seen Paul use military language several times in this letter emphasizing to the Philippians the importance, the seriousness of what they're doing living lives as Christian people. And so the first command here, he says, stand firm. And they need to stand firm for various reasons. They need to stand firm because of false teaching. He dealt with that in chapter three. They need to stand firm because if they are faithful witnesses, the chances are that they'll suffer for it in some way. They might suffer the loss of friendships, might suffer the loss of employment, might suffer far worse might be thrown out of their city. They need to stand firm against attempts to divide or distract them. And Satan is always wanting to do that in the local church. And we'll see Paul address that more directly in a moment. But again, friends, notice that he doesn't just say stand firm, full stop. He says, stand firm in the Lord. That's where our power comes from. For our witness or for our perseverance in the faith. Or for our dealing with trials of various kinds. It comes from the Lord. Uh, Merida and Chan in their commentary they say our strength isn't in how long we've been Christians. How much we know about the Bible. How many mission trips we've been on. It is our union with Christ that enables us to stand firm. There are many Christian pastors and leaders who have become world famous for some of the things that Merida and Chan mentioned there. Uh, They've written books, they've filled stadiums with listeners and then tragically it's transpired that they weren't really walking closely with Christ at all. And sadly as a result they did not stand firm in the face of sexual temptation, temptations to fraudulent financial gain, whatever it may have been. And of course you don't have to be a world famous pastor or a world famous Christian to stumble in those kinds of areas. I thought about Lot this morning and his foolish choices that left him suffering so badly even though he was a believer. I've seen some of the pressures the Philippians lived with in their highly modern pagan Roman city. Remember Peter who had the faith to walk out onto the sea when He saw Jesus in the storm, but it was when he took his eyes off Jesus that he began to sink. And Paul essentially is saying to the Philippians here, don't take your eyes off Jesus. Stand firm by the power that he gives. What motivates us to stand firm? Well, Paul's already talked about it in chapter 3. We thought about it last week. The hope of our glorious resurrection, that that, that Christ will come and he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And that's why Paul says back in chapter 3 verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. The thought of resurrection, freedom from lowly bodies, life in the kingdom, that's what motivates us to stand firm. And so Paul uses this affectionate language to, uh, and the language of Christ and what he will do for us to remind himself and to remind these believers how deeply we are loved by the Lord, how, how much motivation we should have to stand firm. We're in Christ. We're loved by Christ. He will give us the power against Satan's temptations, against the world's pressures, battles with our own sin. If we're in him, if we are feeding on his word, reminding ourselves of his love, looking ahead to resurrection coming. So he says, stand firm in the Lord. But secondly, he says, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. This is uh, verses two and three. And as you look at verses two and three, it's worth remembering that when this letter arrived in Philippi, one person would have read it to the whole congregation Maybe on the Lord's day, they didn't photocopy it and pass it around. Someone read these words aloud in front of everyone. Now with that in mind, look at verse 2. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Imagine being named by your pastor. Don't worry, no one's going to get named this evening. But imagine being named by your pastor in the middle of a church service and being told to agree with someone else in the church. I think most of us, if we were Iodia or Syndicate, we would have gone bright red and we would have wanted the ground to swallow us up at that point. Imagine that, hearing your name read out of church for this reason. Disagreement with a fellow believer, a lack of unity. And yet it probably wasn't a big shock to the Philippian church to hear the names of Euda and Syntyche read out. Because for Paul to go, go to the length of naming them in a letter. Well everyone must have known that there was something wrong between these two women. And it must have been perhaps quite serious. And because there was something, because everyone knew that there was something wrong. Everyone needed to know when it was resolved. So there were no cross wires, no gossip, no, uh, nobody getting things wrong. Now we don't know what the problem was between these two women, Eudea and Syntyche. But look how Paul describes them. It's very important here, verse 3. He says, true companion, and there's a bit of debate. True companion. Some commentators think it's it's actually a name there, that, uh, a formal name that means true companion. Some people think he's, he's not naming someone, but he's he's calling someone a true companion. But he says, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So Paul speaks very highly of these women. He says they've been his fellow workers. They have been side by side with him in his labors. The word labor there is strong. They've struggled. They've worked hard. They have sacrificed for the gospel. Iodia and Syntyche, friends, I think it's safe to make this assumption Uh, They probably weren't the sort of people that would fall out over what color the new church carpet should be or what type of flowers to display or who gets asked on to this or that committee. Some people, those are the only things they care about and they have to get their way every time. No, Iodia and Syndicate, Paul says, they were gospel partners. They were concerned about the gospel. They had labored for the gospel. Like other godly women in scripture, maybe Lydia, one of the other believers in Philippi. Or some of the women we read about in the gospels or in the book of Acts. These were godly women. They, they had a strong faith. They were willing to pour themselves out for the good of the gospel. And yet, they had fallen out. And sadly, in an imperfect world, and in a, in a church made up of imperfect men and women and boys and girls... A falling out can happen between two mature godly believers. You remember Paul himself was involved in a falling out with his good friend Barnabas. They had gone on a whole missionary journey together. They were about to set out on another missionary journey. And Acts 15 tells us they had a sharp disagreement about whether to take that young man, John Mark, with them or not. So much so that they actually ended up going on separate missionary journeys and Barnabas took John, Mark and Paul took Silas and they went in opposite directions. None of us are perfect. We sometimes see things from different points of view and sometimes there are legitimate different points of view. Strong personalities can clash and maybe it takes time for full reconciliation. But Friends, here's the point. Every effort must be made to reconcile. Every effort must be made. The word entreat there sounds a bit old-fashioned, but uh, it could also be translated, I I beg. I beg, I beg, I beg, Syndicate." Paul's saying, he says, if it was there, I would be on my knees in front of these women, urging them to agree. And again, How? How are, how are disputes to be resolved? In the Lord. To agree, he says, uh, I urge them to agree, in the Lord. And those three little words should be a powerful reminder to us, friends, now. Or if in the future we find ourselves in a falling out with a fellow believer. And, and of course, this, this, couldn't, this may not just be a fellow believer in the congregation. In fact, it's more likely to be time to time in our own, under our own roof with our own family members. But if if and when that happens, those three little words remind us of what unites us. And what unites us is far more important than whatever it is that has divided us. Paul says what he's saying to them here, you're united together by faith in Christ. You are sisters in Christ. You are both forgiven sinners. You both have experienced the forgiveness of Christ. Your ultimate destiny, both of you, is to be in heaven together. He says at the end of verse 3, that all believers have their names written in the book of life. I wonder, is that not a reminder to these women, Iodae and Syntyche, you're going to spend eternity together, so sort it out. Sort it out. Paul wants them to be serving and worshipping side by side once again in Philippi. Notice what he says in verse 3. True companion. Whoever that may have been. He maybe had someone in particular in mind. He says help these women. If two Christians fall out. There may be a role for a mediator. A fellow Christian to to come in and, and bring them back together. It doesn't necessarily have to be an elder. It may be that elders need to be involved. Depending on the circumstances. But whoever steps in. Every effort must be made for believers to agree in the Lord. And again, this is a theme that we've seen already in the letter, but such uh, so important is it that Paul comes back to it here towards the end because division in the local church can be an awful thing. It can discourage and set back the life of a church sometimes irreparably. Not only that, but it's, it's drastically harmful to a, to a church's witness. Who wants to join a group of people who don't get along? What have we got to offer a world of lonely, angry, anxious, divided people if we're divided amongst ourselves? It's not much of an advert for the reconcil- reconciling power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as Paul says elsewhere, friends, we're to make every effort to maintain the unity. That we have in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so we need to humble ourselves. And think well of one another. And forgive one another. Whether it's in our homes. In our immediate family. Whether it's in the church family. And that may be painful. that, That may take time and effort. But again we go back to those powerful words. At the heart of this letter. Philippians 2 verse 5. Jesus Christ humbled himself. Who are we to hold a grudge, to fail to forgive, to stubbornly refuse to reconcile with a brother or a sister in Christ considering all that our Saviour has done for us? And so we're to stand firm in the Lord and we're to agree in the Lord. And thirdly, we are to rejoice in the Lord. We're to rejoice in the Lord. Just look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This has just been the drumbeat of the whole letter. Uh, we've seen it over and over again. Joy, joy, joy. And so he says here, he knows he's repeating himself. He says, again, I will say rejoice. I don't care if I've said it already, Paul says. And notice the little word he uses there. Rejoice in the Lord Always. Always. Again, Paul is writing this letter from prison. It's not like he's sitting in some palace somewhere, draped over a sofa, watching TV. Paul commands the Philippians, commands them to rejoice always. How did Paul, the prisoner, the outcast, always rejoice? Well, quite simply, friends, because he was focused, his focus was on what he had in Jesus Christ. The same three words again are key. Rejoice in the Lord. And rejoice in the Lord does not mean that you put on a big fake smile. Even when you're heartbroken or exhausted or angry. But if you're truly maturing in your Christian faith. If we are regularly thinking about and giving thanks for all that we have as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you always have something. Something. To be monumentally thankful and joyful about. If we truly realise what we deserve. Sinners by nature and choice. Who have disobeyed a holy and wonderful and mighty God. And yet who have been forgiven. And who have heaven and resurrection to look forward to. Who is a saviour who has died for us. Who has loved us. Dear friend. We should always be able to rejoice. Paul is speaking here as someone who had had his back whipped. Who had been shipwrecked for the good of the gospel. Who had been stoned for the good of the gospel. Almost to the point of death. Who had been rejected by his own people. This is someone who knows about suffering. And yet he says rejoice in the Lord always. Some of you might remember a song that came out a number of years ago now. And it was simply called Happy by Pharrell Williams. It was number one single in the UK and Ireland and the US, many other countries. The most downloaded song of 2014, nearly 6.5 million downloads in the United States. And as you can imagine with the name Happy, it was a very happy song. Uh, but it was actually written for a children's film, Despicable Me 2. And it starts playing when Gru, G-R-U, Gru who used to be a really awful person, really bad guy with no friends, uh, he gets a kiss on the cheek from Lucy, who, despite how despicable Grew was, has grown to love him. And when Lucy kisses Grew, he's overjoyed because someone loves him. And that's when the, the song Happy kicks in in the background. His eyes just uh, go wide and the song kicks in and he's dancing down the street. Friends, you and I were despicable by nature. When you consider the depths of sin in our hearts, we are thoroughly unlovable creatures. But God has loved us and saved us through Christ. We can't always rejoice in football because sometimes the team loses. We can't always rejoice in holidays because they don't last very long, even with the high number of bank holidays this month. We can never and should never rejoice in money because there will always be someone who is more than us and no amount of money makes anyone any happier anyway. Add whatever you want to the sentence. A marriage, a family, health, better hair, better skin, fewer wrinkles. We can't always rejoice. We can sometimes rejoice in these things. We can't always rejoice in any of it. But we can always rejoice In the Lord Jesus Christ and in everything we have in him. Paul is an interesting little line, be easily missed. It's one of the challenges preaching through Paul's letters just throws so much at us. But in verse 5, after saying this, rejoice always. He says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And the word there for reasonableness is hard to capture with just one English word. Some of your translations will have gentleness or forbearance. It means showing a gracious, gentle, down-to-earth, patient attitude with others. Perhaps especially with others who don't yet have the same reason to rejoice that we have. People who don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that the world around us isn't rejoicing. It's no wonder that the world around us has to hope that a coronation or an extra bank holiday... Or a cash prize or a new phone will make them rejoice. Because they don't know where to find true joy. And I think Paul is saying here in context, be a witness to them. By rejoicing in Christ. And living with grace and patience and gentleness. There's something to be said for the witness of a Christian who is steady. The people that know you best, they just... They see that you don't get too high with the highs, you don't get too low with the lows, that, that you always have that, that peace about you, that, that assurance about you, that joy in Jesus Christ. George Miller said, The first great and primary business every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. May that be true of each of us, friends. Happy. In the Lord, not that we don't ask for help when we need when we need it to deal with life's heartaches and trials, not that we don't feel times of pain and exhaustion, but that we always remember that we have in Christ reason to rejoice. So stand firm in the Lord, agree in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And then fourthly, and this is not so much a command, but it's a promise, peace. In the Lord. Peace in the Lord. Paul says in verses five and six the Lord is at hand. Uh, that's that's the return of the Lord. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Do not be anxious, Paul says. One writer actually translates it stop worrying. Simple as that, in terms of the language of it stop worrying. Notice friends, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Do not be anxious. Now there are some anxieties that are natural and perhaps even healthy if we're being very generous to ourselves. Perhaps we wake up in the morning, the alarm goes off and we're in a sense anxious to get on with the day. Maybe there's work we know we need to do and we're keen to get on with it. Maybe there's some important event we need to get ready for it. And there'd be something wrong if you weren't a little bit tense or or energized or a little bit anxious to get on with things. But the kind of anxiety Paul commands us to stop altogether is a constant, fretful, what I'm going to call atheistic anxiety. The kind of anxiety that would suggest to other people that we don't have any faith in a sovereign, all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing God. Because if we allow ourselves to be consumed by worry and anxiety, that's how it could seem at times. That's how we're acting. We're we're acting atheistically, even if we would never call ourselves atheists. And yet, I would imagine there's very few of us who would say that we never struggle with anxiety to some degree. It's a very difficult thing. What's the solution? Well, Paul says the solution is prayer. Prayer. Do not be anxious, he says in verse 6. And instead he says, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Prayer, supplication, requests, verse 6. Three different words for the same thing. Talking to God. Telling him what is making us anxious. As we saw earlier in the psalm, uh, complaining and sighing to the Lord. Asking for his peace in the midst of our worries and troubles. And notice the other word Paul uses in verse 6. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. How often even if we do remember to pray, we forget to be thankful. How often when there's one thing that's making us anxious about the future, we forget the hundreds of things that God has already provided for us. The secret to, uh, to experiencing greater peace, Paul says here, is prayer. And prayer is an act of humility. That's maybe why we find it so difficult at times, because we're so self-reli- self-reliant. Prayer is a confession. I can't do it all my own. I'm not in control. As much as I might like to think I am, as much as I plan for things, and I have a diary, and I have insurance, and I make money, and I do this or that for myself or my family... Prayer is ultimately a confession that we are not in control. But our Heavenly Father is. And so we come in humility asking him for what we need. Friends, if by the help of the Holy Spirit we put this into practice, if we stop worrying and start praying, look what the result will be, verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, notice the words, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. The peace of God is, in Scripture is really a way of summing up the whole experience of believers, past, present and future. You may have heard before about the significance of the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom in Hebrew, it's not just an absence of war, which is how we tend to define peace today. But it's a spiritual state of rest and and security and and uh, and your whole being being at peace. It's what human beings had with God before the before the fall. It's what we will have again when Christ returns. And it's that kind of peace Paul is talking about here. And he says the peace of God will guard will guard your hearts and minds. The word there for guard means garrison, a squad of soldiers surrounding a city. And the Philippians knew what that looked like. Their, their city was surrounded by Roman soldiers at all times. It was a Roman city and it was guarded day and night. And you think of the confidence that gave to the citizens. The most fearsome, uh, victorious, successful army in the history of the world at that point, And we've got them looking after us. And Paul says the peace of God will garrison your heart even in the midst of life's trials and hardships. Don Carson throws out this challenge to us in his comments in this passage. He says, I have yet to meet a chronic worrier who enjoys an excellent prayer life. I've yet to meet a chronic worrier who enjoys an excellent prayer life. And so that's the choice. We can worry or we can pray, but we can't do both at the same time. It can be funny sometimes to watch people, if you go bowling, 10-pin bowling, uh, at the alley after they've released the ball. Uh, Some people, their body twists and turns and, and, you know, they want the ball to go a bit more that way or a bit more that way. And of course, once you've released the ball, you may as well go and sit down. There's no point standing there, moving around as if you're doing, you know, bad dancing or something. You may as well go and sit down. There's nothing more you can do. You've taken your shot. Offering up our prayers to God, friends, is like letting go of that heavy, burdensome bowling ball and then just going and sitting down. Because unlike in temp and bowling, where we might end up watching a lot of our shots going down the gutter, our prayer requests, offered through the Lord Jesus Christ, always reach their target. And so Paul says, let your requests be made known to God. And if you do, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will garrison your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So writes a man, chained to a Roman soldier, waiting to stand trial before the most powerful man in the world, not knowing what would happen next. And yet he had perfect peace because he knew how to pray. And through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I should do the same. Do we need to remind ourselves perhaps of some of the promises we have as we come to the place of prayer? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Come to me and I will give you rest. I go to prepare a place for you. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. You will not receive a hundredfold now and this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. With persecutions. And in the age to come. Eternal life. Jesus has promised us all of that and much more besides. He says I will never leave you or forsake you. And so cast your cares upon him. And he will sustain you as the psalmist says. You will have perfect peace but only. If you come to Christ in faith. In the Lord we can stand firm. In the Lord we can agree and be united together as believers. In the Lord we can rejoice. And in the Lord we can swap worry for peace. As we come to God in prayer. Amen.